Christmas, happy Hanukkah, happy Kwanzaa, and happy New Year to everybody. We hope you enjoyed your holidays. This is the Role Player Podcast presented to you by the good folks over at Swiss Cultures in affiliation with Eurohoops.net. Be sure to follow us on all Swiss Cultures social media pages and YouTube page and all the socials affiliated with the Role Player. That is the handle at the Role Player Pod on Instagram and the role and at the role p underscore on twitter i am jordan taylor still rocking with my guy stanford gentleman retired 11 year overseas vet and co-founder over at swish cultures the one and only the esteemed anthony goods man and how was your holidays i hope you enjoyed it i see you got the fresh lineup over there in spain man Nah, I, nah, everything's been good, man. I, I just want to know who who gifted you my barber for uh for Christmas. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> he was looking trash for about four months, man. And now you got a little you looking like me over there. You know what I mean? I feel like it? I'm looking in the mirror. You see it? Don't be mad because I'm beautiful, baby. Don't be mad because I'm beautiful. And what happened though is for the first time ever. Buddy in London, I, I should have been getting my cut over here forever because Buddy put the little enhancements on. You know, he did the little he did the little air spray to me, and my line was looking like about 2005 <laughs> up until about a couple hours ago. You know what I'm saying? I had the little Carlos yeah. Boozer Beijing look too. So I, I was you rolling. Got the LeBron, you got the LeBron uh, game day special, huh? I got I got the LeBron game day special, man. I need LeBron bread too, but that's all right, man. It was uh, I, yeah, but you know, I, I, like I told you, I t- I'm always gonna make a comeback, man. And we got we got a guest we got a guest on today who's already brought it on home. I'm gonna join him soon, but we'll get that we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. So, so yeah, we got. We I've got LeBron's real hair real hairline here. We got LeBron's real hairline, man. We got we got a little change up for you guys today, man. We have a we have a guest who does not have a lot of buckets to his resume. However, he has mastered a role in the game of basketball. Uh, as quick introduction, Mr. Aaron Raiden has spent 20 years in the New York community coaching basketball. He's coached the, the likes of Sebastian Telfair and Born Ready, a.k.a. Lance Stevenson, and that's the guy that blew in LeBron's ear on the memes for the younger crowd. Uh, spent an early part of his career working on licensing and branding in the David Stern and Michael Jordan NBA era from 94 to 97. So we're going to get into that before we moved on to companies like NBC Universal, CBS, Meta or Facebook for the older crowd, and most recently has landed in London with the designs of becoming uh, somewhat of a David Stern himself with the British Basketball League, um, uh, uh, a task that I know he's looking forward to and where we're glad to have you on. Aaron, appreciate you joining us. I appreciate you having me. It's really fun, and hopefully I will be David Stern with less cursing and a little bit taller. <laughs> <laughs> right, how, how tall is David Stern? David Stern is very well. Was very short. Was, he's yeah. probably about. I would say he's maybe five seven. Man, oh, man, wow. I didn't realize. I thought he was taller. Yeah. Than that. Wow. Good for him. No, he's, him. he's small. I mean, guy. He always looks small on the draft, but you know these he guys does. are seven foot, so everybody look little. You never, you can't yeah. really gauge it off the. Uh, Adam Silver's tall. Adam Silver's probably yeah. a good six five, yeah. but that, yeah. David David was a short guy. Okay. Okay. Well, listen. Are we going to start it off right here? I know you have uh, an extensive past uh, working with with mm-hmm. media companies and obviously in the NBA, as mentioned. But I guess we're going to start mm-hmm. right here. Did you envision back in 1994 when you started, did you envision the mm-hmm. NBA becoming what it is today from an entertainment standpoint, obviously from a from a monetary economic standpoint? I mean, I. <laughs> I think anyone would be lying if they thought that they would, it would get to the sort of the dollar figures that are thrown around today. 
But in terms of like uh, the level of fandom, the level of enthusiasm, the, the level of coverage that the league has around the world, I would say actually, yes. Like how that translated into, into dollar numbers, you know, again, nobody could really project what that is. But even when I joined, there was such a focus on making it um, appealing internationally. And, you know, the NBA has gone through a number of different iterations in terms of figuring out how to get that right sort of product market fit. You know, some of it was like, we're going to export, you know, call it America or the American game to these different markets. Some of it has been like, we're trying to uh, shape the narrative or craft the story to be uh, more resonant for, for each respective market. There's been a little bit of both. I think ultimately like, you know, the league, I suppose one of the best things it's done and one of the best things in terms of, in terms of how it's, carried, I suppose, across borders is uh, being able to expand beyond the promotion of teams uh, to the promotion of players. And, you know, that's, that's really, and there's sort of, you know, a couple of things that the NBA did that, you know, in some ways are unique, in some ways are a, a function of the circumstances that they, that they had, both in terms of their ability to promote licensed products related to players, but also the ability for the products, for the, for the players to, to promote themselves and for, um, you know, the respective brand partners that work with them. Of course, you know, Jordan's the biggest one far and away, but it's carried on with LeBron, KD, and all the guys that get sneaker deals. Cause ultimately like those guys, you know, they're, they're looking to move product and the, you know, the more that they can create, um, affinity with with those players the bigger that the the game has become and i think that's probably the biggest difference you know even over here like nfl is big over here in london they sell out the arenas like it's a it's a really big deal but it's not like you know people are running around with trevor lawrence jerseys um it's you know or even know who trevor lawrence is so you know it's a big difference to have you know those 5 10 15 25 players that are known worldwide um, and that's one of the best things that, that I think the NBA you know, really did probably above and beyond, uh, what they were doing when I joined the league, you know, nearly 30 years ago. As, as far as moving forward with the league, you see this huge wave, uh, from a branding standpoint with the international audience, you see, I think, you know, Stan Van Gundy tweeted the other day that I think eight of the top nine rebounders in the NBA are European and four of the top five scorers are European. How important is that to the NBA's branding currently to have the guys like Giannis, Luka, Jokic at the forefront of of their branding? And I guess they do that by playing well. But is that is that like a concerted effort or is that just something that's welcomed and you, you know, you kind of adapt and, and go with the flow? Um when it comes to the business side? Well, they're the best players. <laughs> so the best players are going to rise to the top from a marketing standpoint. And, you know, generally, you know, with, with some exceptions, the sneaker companies are going to want to, you know, the brand partners are going to want to get behind them and promote those, those top players. So, you know, does a Giannis resonate more than a Jokic? You know, you could sort of debate, but, you know, I say, you know, one of the most important things, and I used to be a huge baseball fan, probably less so these days. And I think baseball has really struggled, you know, in part because so many of the players today are are Latin, not because they are Latin, but because they actually are not communicating in, in English to the level that mm. the European players are able to, you know, 
really communicate well and there's there's really no barrier from a market standpoint in terms of their ability to c- communicate you know Giannis is great with the press Doncic is great with the press like these guys are just and they've been at it since since they were young kids they've been trained really well about how to how to do it um so you know i think it's one of the things and it honestly it happens probably before the nba ever even gets their hands on them like the the level of training that goes on whether you know you do a year at duke or you're at kentucky or you do a year in real madrid or wherever uh the level of training that you have to be ready to answer questions in either um, both a comprehensive way and a relatively innocuous way because you know you you generally you want to avoid saying things that are controversial uh if you are if you're a superstar level player yeah i had a i had a thought like you know especially in regards to like let's say major league baseball and like nfl you know i think one of the benefits that basketball has is you know the summer international competitions, whether it be the World Cup, you know, Olympic basketball, especially, you know, once they started getting the NBA players involved, um, playing with Team USA and them going over to, uh, you know, to foreign countries and and playing against the, uh, you know, playing against the foreign countries. But do you think that, do you think that that, let's just say like the international competitions had more of an impact in regards to, you know, the the growth internationally with the NBA or do you think it had or or what do you think in regards to like let's say TV distribution you know because now I mean just about every country I've been in they'll show a couple NBA games you know whether it be mm-hmm. replayed in the morning and things like that and I felt like every year I was overseas I started seeing more and more and more you know what I mean but uh I'm, obviously I don't know how much how it was prior but what do you think uh, attributed to that growth internationally the most so I would set set the TV distribution aside for a second. Let's just talk about the, the international competition. So if you go back to '92, Dream Team come, you know, and the lead up to '92, like why did why did the Dream Team actually happen? Was the fact that the U.S. started losing, right? They they were playing college players against pros. They, they were having really heavy competition and, and started to lose. I think they lost in '88 in the Olympics, and so they put the Dream Team. Dream Team wiped everyone, and that you know, continued for what to, to 2004 or 2006. I can't remember. I think it was both that the U S lost. Yeah. I think they lost in four, four in the Olympics and Oh six in, um, world championships. And, you know, I think at first it was, um, you know, celebrity gazing for, for all the markets around the world. Like, wow, we get to see the best players in the world play and measure ourselves against, against the best. I think it pretty quickly turned to like, we want to beat these guys. And, you know, you know, part of that is like, yes, you've got to develop better players. And part of that is you've got to play by the rules that we're playing in, which are different. They're, you know, slightly different rules, but there are things where you can like gain edges on the, on the margin. And a lot of those things started to add up over time until, you know, then all of a sudden they, you know, Argentina, Greece was beating the U S and, you know, you could argue that maybe that was somewhat apathy on the part of the, the U.S. or the, the way that the team was put together or guys didn't want to play or whatever. But, you know, the reality is at the end of the day, you're measured by your record, wins and losses. And we were we were catching some L's, or the, the U.S. was, uh, until they started, you know, put the team back together and had the best guys show up. But, you know, I think that that actually you know, from a business standpoint, from a viewership standpoint, was beneficial for the game. 
right? Because now you had all these different countries who were like, okay, we can measure up and we're competing. And it created that level of enthusiasm. It created that motivation to do the player development and, and compete on an international level with the U.S. and think that you could compete on the international with the level with the U.S. Um, you know, and I think to your point, Anthony, about like, oh, then I'm starting to see the games. Like it, that, it's just, you know, that creates more interest to, to see that level of competition on air. Um, and so, you know, of course the league is going to make every effort to have the product in its sort of best form. And when I say best form, it's broadcast quality, watch full games. You know, uh, if you're going back that far, you're not really talking about social media or YouTube. You're principally watching on you know, full link broadcast, whether it's showing live or on tape delay, or you see, you might, you know, there were certainly being exported highlight shows, things like top 10 plays of the week and all sorts of stuff like that. All of it was meant to, to drum up interest. <clears throat> and, you know, I think that they spent a good time, uh, of focus and collaboration with trying to build up the interest in each of these markets ultimately to capture as much of the market share that they could from a business perspective, that's the NBA's goal. But, you know, I think it's sort of like a rising tide lifts all ships, right? Like if there's more interest in the game, there's more, there's more to go around for the domestic league. There's more to go around for the, for the teams that play domestically. And hopefully you're creating a bigger economy for this, for the sport overall so that everybody can eat. So, with the NBA, the NBA did report last year, uh, ten billion in revenue. Um, I guess just <clears throat> you're, you're talking about the interest in the game and, and the rising tide. So, just for the audience, break down simplistically what the NBA and broadcast companies. Once you have that interest, what do they do to kind of capitalize on that interest in terms of production, uh, advertising, um, all those things? You mean in terms of the where the where the revenue is drawn from? Exactly. Yep. Yeah. So, um, there are, there are different buckets. There's, there's broadcast rights. So you're going to do a broadcast rights deal. And in the case of, of the NBA in the U S it's ESPN and Turner. Uh, but they have many international partners <clears throat> who are paying significantly less than the U S rights deals are. And, you know, the principal reason is it's, it's about eyeballs and, and selling advertising. Uh, but also in the case of ESPN and, and, and Turner, they're, they're driving subscription revenue. So if you look at sort of what's going on in the television business, you know, both generally in the U.S. and around the world, is that people are cutting the cord from cable. Mm. If you think about, like, how do, how do ESPN and, well, what's now Warner Brothers Discovery make, make money? There's principally two buckets. They drive it from advertising uh, and they drive it from s- subscriptions. Now there's sort of two forms of subscription today. Let's let's set OTT aside for a second. But historically, in the cable business, they get paid a monthly fee from the cable operator per subscriber. So in ESPN's case, they're probably doing I don't know what the latest rates are, maybe seven dollars a month per subscriber in the U.S. And when the U.S. Was, you know had a cable universe of ninety to hundred million consumers, you know you can do the math on on what that is from a revenue standpoint. And, you know, because cable has been shrinking somewhere in the neighborhood of anywhere from three to seven percent per year for the last you know, five, ten years and continue, you know, accelerating that that decline. So those numbers are shrinking. They've got to make it up in ad sales. Um, the number of people who are watching actually has decreased, you know, 
notwithstanding what what some of the numbers that get reported are in terms of like what they say the viewership looks like. So those are the biggest buckets you know, that that would drive revenue. The other biggest buckets are going to be things like <clears throat> that come out of MBA properties, which is principally licensing. You know, that's everything from jersey sales to, you know, in the old days, it would have been DVDs. Now you're licensing video in various formats, trading cards, apparel, you know, anything with an NBA or NBA team logo on it. Uh, you know, a typical loyalty rate is looking you know, somewhere in a range of 10 to 20 percent that they're making off of every, every single officially licensed product. Of course, you know, there's bootleg that floats around, but you know, they try and catch most of that. Um those are the principal revenue sources that you'd see in elite at, at a national level. You know, the teams have their own uh, revenue sources at a local level, which would be like gate local sponsorships. They have their own local TV deals, which are sort of like, you know, re-rack what I just said about, about ESPN and, and Turner and think about like, okay, what does that look like for, um, uh, I think, they're called NBC Sports Networks, which is like the ones owned by Comcast. You have Fox Sports, you have Bally's. Like those are all examples of what you're doing on a local TV network basis. And sometimes, you know, the teams might own those networks, and sometimes the teams, uh, you know, own the state, own the stadiums, like the Warriors do. So when you own the stadiums, you're getting concessions, and there's all sorts of ancillary revenue streams that can be bought up as a, as a function of developing um, those franchises. And in many ways. You know, if you look at sports overall, and it's not just the NBA, like, um, uh, you know, a sports franchise can be a Trojan horse to a real estate play. Yeah. Right? Like where you where you can actually, you know, get access to public funds to develop an arena. So you can almost develop, build an arena for free and then reap all the benefits of having an arena. <laughs> With, um, <laughs> Keep going. No, I mean, there's multiple examples of that. Like, you know, even in Brooklyn, that's that's how the Nets came to be in Brooklyn. It was it was basically, you know, when Bruce Radner owned the team, it was a Trojan horse to get to actually get access to the real estate where the where Barclays was developed and all of the residential real estate that was built around it. As soon as that that facility was done, he sold the team because he he just wanted access to the real estate. So, are are any of these revenue streams do they have, like for? Let's back it up real quick. We're talking about yeah. um, the cable. People are moving away from cable into streaming, YouTube TV, Amazon. You see the NFL went to Amazon Prime and stuff like that. So with people moving away from the cable, from the cable bundles or the cable core or the, the original cable, does that threaten, one, the local broadcast of NBA teams? And does the, how does that become problematic, if at all? Yes, to all of it. So... Yeah. You know, not to get too far in the weeds here, but if you actually look at what's going on with Valley Sports today, like Valley Sports is not getting covered uh, by new services. Like they can't get on air in some of their own local markets. And, you know, you guys would be familiar with this. Like this happens all the time where like you'll get a dispute between a cable operator and a, and a network where they're going to say like, you know, next week such and such network is going to go off the air. And that's always a dispute about about what this per subscriber fee is. But because the bundle is is um, there's more pressure on why am I going to spend a hundred or hundred fifty two hundred dollars a month on my cable bill, and generally a limited number of people are are watching the regional sports network, in, you know that are signed up for that bundle, and because it's such a big price usually as part of the subscriber bundle, 
to the cable operator. So if, you know, I'm making it up so that if like, uh, the yes channel in New York and you know, I don't know what the rate is, but let's say hypothetically it was $5 per subscriber mm-hmm. and only 20% of the subscribers actually watch it. That means 80% of them are paying $5 a month and never doing that. So from a cable operator standpoint, they're like, okay, what's the trade off for me? Or can I sell it all a cart? When you, if you start trying to sell it all a cart, then you get less viewership and it sort of has cascading challenges related to, to the local broadcast. Um, there's all sorts of historical reasons why um, the broadcast model has evolved the way it did in the, in the United States, especially with local. We could probably do a three-hour podcast on that. Um, I'll spare your, your listeners that part. But, um, you know, I think this is a really important piece going forward because, you know, it, it really creates – this is where, you know, the, the national network revenue, the national – uh, licensing revenue is all divided equally amongst the clubs. The pieces that the clubs keep individually are gate. You know, they happen to own their own facilities of so food and beverage, whatever, mm-hmm. and local TV. So Lakers have a monster local TV deal, yeah. you know, relative to a market like, you know, I don't know what Sacramento's deal looks Minnesota. like, but it, um, it could be Minnesota. Like, I, I, I don't know if um, in particular, but like, you know, that creates a, a big discrepancy in terms of what you can do from a revenue standpoint. And if you look at like, you know, why are the Warriors able to spend the, the way they are? It's because they own their stadium. Yep. For example, you know, that's a local discrepancy that another market can't, can't replicate. Like Oklahoma City is not going to get to that level of um, revenue to be able to ever compete, assuming that, you know, the, the owners are willing to pay the luxury tax, which is no, also another podcast episode, but <laughs> so, so, so that being said, what, what do you think? I mean, I want to be careful on how to phrase this question. I don't want to get anybody in trouble, but how does the NBA then keep teams like Oklahoma city, Minnesota competitive if they can't compete on an economic level? Because they have a salary cap. Well, the sal- I mean, but it's, but the salary cap, it's like a soft salary cap. Right. And right. so, and so they do as much as they possibly can. And I think actually fairly, as fairly as in any any league, although, you know, the NFL doesn't really have local television. It's different, slightly different, um, uh, to evenly distribute the revenues. And again, the biggest, the biggest revenue pieces are coming out of the national television deals. So that's going to be the biggest, the biggest chunk. Right, right. But also, even with the salary cap, it seems that obviously we've seen over, over the years that players or I guess owners from these markets are willing to go over the luxury tax to get certain free agents. Some. It seems like some. Like some, the, yes. The some, Lakers, no. The Lakers, the Clippers, I mean, uh, Clippers now, I guess. Um, Clippers now. Yeah, it's... it's the Lakers like actually know. The Lakers, the Lakers not this year, right? But they were two years ago, I think. Correct? But historically, they have been spent, they have been spent at the level of like what the Warriors have done in the last seven, eight years. Okay, okay. Well, with this with this international wave going on, as we as we talked about prior, um, I know we've talked about off camera a little bit about like residents when it comes mm-hmm. to to marketing and branding and all that. Do you see mm-hmm. this internet? Although Luca, these guys are some of the best players, whatever. Do you see that as the international wave is a problem with residents with the American fan or not really? I don't think so. I honestly don't. I mean, you you could have made that argument about 
you know, minorities in the sport going back. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, I think again, it's like, um, and I would say the same thing for what we're attempting to do in the British basketball league. Mm -hmm. Like you want to tell stories. The league's goal is to tell stories about these players so that the fans can begin to have an emotive connection with them. They either want to root for them or they want to root against them, mm. but they, but they care one way or the other. And I think, you know, in the case of these guys, people do care. Like they have, you know, really big fandom and there's no reason, uh, because of their lineage, why, why you're not able to accomplish those same sorts of things in terms of storytelling in order to sort of, you know, set, whether they're a protagonist or antagonist in a particular battle, you know, I think you know, the NBA has changed pretty significantly. Like most, you know, if you go back, people would root for, for teams. And I'm not suggesting that people still don't root for teams, but now people root as much, you know, to some degree as much for players and they'll follow a player. Like if you're a LeBron fan and you were rooting for Cleveland and now all of a sudden you're rooting for the Lakers or you know, there's multiple examples like that. Right. Um, and so, uh, that's a bit of difference, but it, it actually goes to reinforcing what I'm saying about this storytelling, which is you, you begin to develop an affinity for these players, not only for their game. Yes, of course. Like they've got like to be a big time superstar player, like that's, that's table stakes. And then it's like, okay, then what is the story that you're subscribing to? that that really helps you um to become a huge fan of that particular player. Yeah, a hundred percent. hundred percent. And so moving on we're moving around the world to the to the British League, what is cause you see, I think, and we've again we've talked before about kind of some of the Asian leagues. I remember back in the day, I think Stephen A got into some hot water about, you know, saying that Shohei Otani wasn't a good face of the league for the MLB because he didn't speak English very well. Um, mm -hmm. so I guess moving forward in the BBL and the British basketball league, what I guess, what, what is phase one for that storytelling? Is it getting the best British basketball player and putting him, slapping him on the, on the front of the London lions or whatever the Leicester riders or what, what's phase one as far as, as far as that branding goes? Um, so I think it's a couple things. I think you guys have sort of highlighted on, uh, on one of the things, which is irrespective of where the player comes from you want to create a, a fan affinity for them. Like if you're a good player, you know, it doesn't matter if you're from Mars, like people will be attracted to your game. And then it's like, okay, what can you do to help the audience know that player better? And that's really sort of a content production um, challenge, if you will, uh, to be able to tell those stories and to be able to tell them in all sorts of different formats, you know, whether it's you know, longer form, for television, whether it's on YouTube, whether it's on TikTok, and I'm going to be able to tell a story in 17 seconds. Like those are all things that you're attempting to do to, to begin to create those affinities. That's one. Two is, and I think you you, you highlighted this, Jordan. Like um, uh, those stories, let's say, perhaps have a better chance of succeeding if they have a local resonance to them as well, mm -hmm. and if somebody is able to identify because they're from that community or they come from that community or they come from that country. And so you, you, um, uh, I won't say you naturally do, but people gravitate towards rooting towards, towards where they're from, particularly if they're, if, um, in an international setting. 
So I think, you know, we, we, we absolutely want to, to, you know, I, I would love, you know, for example, with you playing in the BBL now, I would love for people to understand your story, how you got here, you know, how you became the person that you are, much less the player that you are and either, you know, root hard for you or root hard against you. That's, you know, <laughs> the, the, both of those are good for me. Probably the former is only good, good for you, but, um, but those are the things that really, you know, create the stickiness. And yeah. so, you know, do we have a better shot at doing that with, with, and keeping, you know, the top British talent in the marketplace? Absolutely. For sure. Um, but are, you know, are we going to do it with international players too? A hundred percent. Honestly, you know, you say it's uh, only the, the former is better for me and goods can chime in on this too. But I think even, even being the villain, I'm joking around, but even being the villain as a, as an American basketball player playing in Europe, I think that's one of the things that, that kind of gets you going. Uh, so to like, to your point, to be able to tell those stories and just, if I can go to a gym and, you know, people are showing up to boo me or yell at me, like that's part of the fun as a player too. I don't think, I think guys really relish in that. I don't know if goods agrees on you get, you get some of that in places like Israel and, and the Balkans and stuff like that. But, mm-hmm. you know, I think that's something that is, that would honestly attract some of the best players in my opinion. Yeah. Well, I'm going to say this though. I'm going to say this though. I think, uh, I think, Especially like like the BBL has been like one of the leagues, and I said this probably like five years ago. I was like the moment they get like some money and like the, especially like whether it be like the football teams or whatever start or just even outside investors start investing the money in the right places. Um, I think you know the BBL is going to blow up and turn into a league that Americans want to play in. You know because obviously the language barrier, but I think it's uh, but I think one of the things that uh, creates kind of going to, going along with what you were saying, Aaron, in regards to you know getting people to take interest in the players. I think it's also the inclusion of culture, and I think that the NBA mm-hmm. started to learn about that and, and do that in, in regards to the hip hop, the hip hop culture. Yep. You know, getting embedded into uh, things, especially you know there was a whole fight with the whole dress code thing, and you know obviously Allen Iverson, everybody wanted to be a rapper, and you know what I mean there was mm-hmm. just. There was this storm, but like once it once it calmed down, um, it really turned into something beautiful, and I think that that aided in the uh, in the growth and and I see it in certain places in in Europe, like Paris basketball. They're starting to, you know, they got it's an entertaining it's an entertaining environment, and then you go down the street to Nanterre and you're bored again. You know what I'm saying? So I think uh, you know being tapped in with the culture and being inclusive of the culture also helps fans draw parallels to a player like, Oh, he's dancing to that song. I like that song too. And now you have another way to, to, to level with the player. Yeah. That's a a fantastic point. And it's actually one of the biggest challenges that we're going to have in British basketball league because, you know, basketball is such a popular sport in the UK and um, let's say that there's, there's still a lot of connectivity that can be made with sort of the grassroots community uh, that plays the sport and, you know, pulling that thread across from like people who are playing the playground, people that are like really into UK hip hop, people that are really into sort of like UK fashion designers. And how does that thread into the league? Like, you know, we're, we're just at the precipice of starting to do that. Jordan probably seen a little bit of evidence of it. And, you know, some of the people that, that have come out to the game so far and like we had some different rap, you know, drill rappers perform from the UK, like at, at some of the games, but 
you're you're absolutely right that you like if you wind this all back like ultimately like the brands that is and and part of it is you know you were sort of talking about the being a hero or a villain the reason why you want to be a hero <laughs> is because that creates brand oppor- bigger brand opportunities for for you as players right, right? like you know because ultimately the brands that are associated with the economy of basketball want to sell stuff and they're looking for people who are going to you know generate good vibes and that emotive connection that I talked about before and you know one of the things you know that, that you're pointing out Anthony is that is that um, uh, trends come out of youth culture and most generally inner city youth culture is where those things come from and so if you're able to connect to that, then you're able to connect with the things that are that are trending in a particular music marketplace, whether that's music, fashion, art, what, what have you. And the more that you can connect the culture of the game to those things, the more that you have the chance to be on the edge of all of those um, trend movements and how brands are capitalizing on them because the brands are going to be spending money to support how they connect with them as well. And if you're you're looked at as an ambassador, either as like, from a league perspective or at a, at a player level, because you, you are connecting with them. Um, you're in, you're in the catbird seat. You know, if you sort of look at all the things that LeBron has done brilliantly throughout his career, Mm -hmm. his ability to align with all of those cultural elements to set up his production company with, with Maverick Carter and like, you know, all of those things to make sure that they're always right at the center of all of those cultural developments because of, all of the benefits that can be reaped uh, on the other side of it. hundred, hundred percent. And I guess I, I only said villain because guys overseas, <laughs> guys, guys overseas have never even had the opportunity to, I mean, I correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of these contracts that guys overseas sign kind of take away the NIL power from the players immediately. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. They, know, so they, they strip. Yeah. It's, it's almost like a college deal in a sense where that's, that's stripped immediately. So being a villain or a hero, it's really just the the best you can get is the energy of the crowd or the energy of a game, which, you know, I got to shout out my team, London Lions, for, you know, that Paris game honestly was one of the best atmospheres um, as far, you know, I, I there's there's obviously been bigger crowds as far as like Greece and, and Maccabi and stuff like that, but as far as just the entertainment, the the excitement and the hoopla of a basketball game in Europe, I think that was the best, uh, the best environment I've gotten a chance to be a part of, but... Um, like I said, yeah, the NIL is stripped immediately, um, so I don't know. Well, I'm actually curious to hear from you guys, like, yeah. you know, having played as long as you did in many different countries, like, at the beginning of your well, what are the things that drove you, and let me back up a second. When I started thinking about going into this role and learning about the British Basketball League and spoke to a bunch of, you know, my players that have played for me that have played, you know, all over the world, and ask them like what went into their decisions to play in different places and um, what would have and what would attract them to playing playing in the UK for in the in the British basketball league. Like what what are the things that would be attractive to them? And I'm sort of curious from you, your guys' viewpoint, like what are the things that have driven your decisions or decisions of you know friends, colleagues, teammates that you guys have had to play? You guys have played in all sorts of different places, you know. I got to imagine there's there's a set of criteria, money, culture, fans, coaching, competition level, 
you know, all, you know, where did you start and did those things change over time? And like, you know, as you sort of think, if you were in my seat, for example, and thinking about, you know, how do I set a, a, an attractive uh, environment to attract the top players to play in this league, how would you think about it? Good, you go ahead. Yeah, I think I think uh, obviously competition level and money is usually at the is usually at the forefront. Um, aside from that, I, I would say that's probably like tier one, and then tier two. You know, you you start thinking about culture. You know, do you like the food? Are you going to have trouble speaking English? Um, are there going to be things to do in your free time? Because realistically, I mean, you're in practice. You practice twice a day. You know, you're in the gym. You know, what four maybe six hours tops. And then you got, and if you practice once a day, then you just got all day and you're just sitting at the house. So that's where like the environment, like what do my apartments look like? Do I have a car and things like that? I remember when I was younger, I seen, uh, I seen, I seen, uh, one of my, one of my friends is playing in Spain and they gave him a house and I'm like, man, he's in a house. <laughs> and I just had a three bedroom apartment. So, you know what I'm saying? It was like, that was like the, that was like the goal. And it was like, and that was just for me seeing it on social media. So I think that, um, honestly, and even on Switch Cultures, man, I remember we posted uh, when we posted Shane Larkin's crib, and he's got a sauna in his crib, and he got a movie theater. Obviously, that's like the elite of the elite, but people never really see these things, and so it's like you you kind of get attractive, you kind of get attracted to obviously what you see, and then obviously if you if that's kind of like important to you, you know, in regards to where you live, but. Um, but I think that the BBL's benefit, especially to foreigners, is that there's no Eng- there's no language barrier, and you know the the outside stuff is cool. But again, I don't know how they're living. You know, what I'm saying car situations. Some guys always want a car, and then um, and then obviously you know money and competition is going to come into play. But I think mm-hmm. those are usually the uh, the boxes that that I check. But if I was in if I was if I was in your seat. My thing would be more so to show how some of the players are living, um, like off the mm-hmm. off the court, but like the ones that are living well, like the the Jordan Taylors that you know what I mean that, <laughs> that are that are walking around with the I mean you know with the I'm, I'm aspiring I'm aspiring to that level. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, all I see is lights. All I see hey, is city lights behind them. Hey, you know what I mean? Hey, like you, you see my lights, you gotta go check out Aaron's view over there, man. You gotta go check out. Don't let them fool you. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I think that uh, you know, just showing the entire experience. You know, I remember I went to a London Lions game like uh, I don't know, like maybe four or five years ago uh, to go see my friend play, and uh, you know, I was like, man, this is a nice arena. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And like, it was just something like that. I was like, oh, okay, I could play here. Like, this is cool. Like, I already like the city. You know, everybody speaks English. They got a nice arena. So then I think the, yep. the other part is just showing the living arrangements. And then now you have players a little more interested and, uh, you know, and then they'll take a pay cut to play there, you know. And has it has that changed? Do you think that changed for you from like the time that you first started playing until, you know, three years in, five years in, eight years in? Like, did, did your priorities change? Yeah, I mean, when you when you first starting out, you just trying to make as much money as possible, and you know, get on a, the the best team yeah. that you can get right. to. Um, yeah. As you get older and you start like seeing the lay of the land, how things are working, then your 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 priorities change a little bit, especially on the second half the, the second half of your career. I just yeah. want to be comfortable. I'm not trying to deal with 
BS, crazy coaches, late payments. Like, you know, I, I just want to have a more enjoyable season so I can just focus on basketball. There, there, there are some things that, uh, like, you, there are some things that should just be universal that you kind of expect. I mean, obviously, if the money's somewhat, everybody wants to make as much money um, and, and be on a good team. I think when, when I first got overseas, I was thinking, like, there's an extreme, a supreme level of ignorance about European basketball and a lack of education. I ended up signing to Italy because I could go to Rome or I could go to Podgorica, Montenegro. So for me, I was like, I, I don't know what the hell that is. I'm going to Rome. So you know, I took I took less money regardless, regardless mm-hmm. of uh, of the living situation or whatever. The apartment in Podgorica ended up being nicer. I saw it, but I think that one thing that the advantage of BBL has is to your point would be the storytelling because I think one as I've gotten older being a part or being connected to home in a way um, I think has become super important, especially to this younger generation of hoopers and having being on switch cultures or, you know, being on social media with the Euro league or the Euro cup and having your family see it and being able to kind of feel, I don't know, feel like you're like your like your game is important is a big thing to, to hoopers now. And I think there's such mm-hmm. a baseline um, as far as, as far as the car goes and the living accommodations, like nobody has really set themselves apart. And I don't think anybody ever will um, from that standpoint where if, you know, like I said, if you're on TV, if uh, one of the biggest things coming from Romania to London is my, my family now, like, Oh, we can catch your games on YouTube. You know, the London lions social media team is great. They're posting stuff. I can retweet it. I can interact with them. And that's something that Mm -hmm. honestly, for me, I realized when I went to France and played EuroLeague, it made me enjoy the game that much more because um, you, you get to share, you kind of get to share your talents and your accomplishments and, and what you have going on from right, thousands of miles good. away with the people that you care about most. Which yeah, I you shine a light on what you're doing. You shine a light on what you're doing, which I think to me, honestly... Otherwise, you're in the dark. You're in the dark. <laughs> and I least, think, and, yeah. and that's, nobody likes to be in the darkness, right? Nobody, like, most people don't like to be a villain. I can do it, but most people don't right. like to be in the darkness or be a villain. So I think, and, I, and honestly, I don't even think that that's something a lot of guys realize. Um, but with social media and the world shrinking so much now, I think it, it immediately raises the joy of players when they can, again, share their, share their uh, light hmm. with, with the people back home. That's really interesting. That's so, a good one. I, I, I hadn't really thought about that as much, but I, I can appreciate why, why that would be important to have your family and friends at home to be able to see you play. You know, and I, I give you. I think when I was in a, when I was in Poland or somewhere, I think they had like it was like ten dollars subscription, like for to watch all the games. You know, for people back mm-hmm. home and stuff like that. So you can get off of YouTube. You know, what I mean, ten dollars subscription. The players usually would pay it and just kind of treat it like sure. Netflix. You know, they would just mm-hmm. share it with their family and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. But you know, just uh, creating some way. I think you know, as Jordan said, creating some way that. Your family and everybody back home can watch is uh, is huge. You know, what I mean, I think that that also it, it plays a it plays a minor role in in decision making as well. And with with all that with all that being said and being seen, how important do you think, Aaron, is it for London, Leicester, uh, uh, Leicester, um, Surrey, whoever, however many teams you can have from the BBL to participate? Mm-hmm in European competition, whether it be Champions League, EuroLeague, um, or what have you, for the success of the BBL? Well, I mean, you guys actually answered the question for me before, which is like you want, you want to be able to, to have the opportunity at least to play against, you know, with the best competition. Mm-hmm. So, you know, 
I, I don't think the players in this league are any different. Um, uh, you know, no league in the world is sending every single team for the league, you know, to play in these European competitions. You've got to qualify. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that, you know, we've already seen it this year with you guys playing in, in Euro Cup that really sort of the first time in an, in an awful long time that a team from the BBL has competed and you guys are making a good show of it so far. And, you know, I think that you have expectations to perform even better than you have a, a, already. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just, you know, I think demonstrates sort of the, the, both the level of play and also, you know, be able to measure yourself up against, against those, those other players from all over the world. You know, I think part of the challenge is, you know, for me, in the position is, is trying to figure out, um, from a business model standpoint, how does that work? Right. Mm-hmm. Because I'm really focused on building a domestic league, having all the teams be competitive, figuring out all the revenue sources that are related. And, you know, my revenue sources are not going to be substantively different than what I, what I described for, for the NBA, albeit, you know, minus a zero or two, but like, I'm looking at, you know, how do we drive broadcast rights? How do we get on air and get exposure for, you know, on a national level for the teams? How do we create a licensing business so that, like, it is cool for people to, to you know, go around wearing a London Lions or a Leicester Riders jersey? Um, uh, you know, so so um, how do we build a content business big enough that we're generating more eyeballs, more awareness, you know, all the things that you guys are, are talking about? The economics of EuroCup is a little bit different. It probably requires sort of a different, a, a little bit of a different conversation, um, because you know of, of of how you can generate revenues from. Um, yes, obviously you get a gate because you're you know it's another home day. There are a number of other home home dates that you get to to sell tickets, um, and. Like, how do you drive broadcast revenues? Because it's it's sort of it's almost like a separate deal that you have to make, and like. Um, uh, Euroleague controls the rights, and EuroCup and FIBA would control the rights for for the FIBA competitions. It's a, it's just a different ec- economic model, and it's a little bit more challenging, and one that I'm I'm you know, I, you know frankly fig- figuring it out um, because we absolutely want to have our teams compete, and we we absolutely want to make it um, economically beneficial for not only the teams, the league, and the players to do so. And you guys hit on one thing on the NIL, which, you know, I sort of want to drill into a little bit more. And I, you know, was kind of like skirting around this a little bit, but like your marketability, like for me and and in particular in social media, if you look at like the league's footprint in terms of eyeballs that I can generate, whether it's, you know, watching the telecast, whether it's YouTube, whether it's social media following, the players have big social media followings. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if I'm, and uh, I actually don't think you, you were there, Jordan, but, uh, you know, I've, I've spoken to some of the teams about this and you know, I'll speak to every, every player in the league. When I look at, like, how are we going to generate revenues, one of the biggest things that we can do and sort of goes to my point about building an economy is to develop, like, branded content where we're doing storytelling that's related to, to players, whether it's related to the league, and we want to integrate brands in, into that branded content. And, and so where this becomes valuable is I want to reach as many eyeballs, relevant eyeballs as I can with, um, with that content. And the players can actually play a huge role in helping to support that, Mm -hmm. right? 
if you've got a couple hundred thousand followers, you know, we've got Obi Soko on London Lions has a million plus followers because he's on Love Island. Like that's a big audience that we can help to get distribution for these campaigns. And, you know, for me, that's that I think I would like to think that that's creating revenue opportunities for the league and for the players if they're helping to support the distribution of these types of content initiatives. And so, you know, one of the things that I, you know, going way, way back when social media first started and I was still coaching, it's like, you know, you're telling kids, don't be stupid about what you're putting on social media because it'll be there forever and some future employer will see it. And, you know, it, it can, it can easily disqualify you as quickly as it qualifies you. And so, you know, you want to have, let's call it relatively clean, wholesome feeds because brands, you know, if, if, if we are going to try and um, uh, build on these types of opportunities that I'm describing, the brands are going to want to be associated with, with accounts that um, they feel comfortable with from a, from a content association standpoint. And so, you know, any player, you know, when I was a, as a coach or even now as a league executive, I would tell any, any player who's managing their social media, like, you're managing yourself as your own brand. You're selling yourself every single every single day in some sort of way. You're selling yourself for your next job. You're selling yourself for association. You're selling yourself in terms of your friends. And, and so you want to be uh, very judicious in terms of how you manage that. And, you know, for those who are really good at it and are able to cultivate an audience while doing that, you know, there are all sorts of benefits that can be reaped because you have that, that type of reach. See, and that is honestly when I when I first signed in London, I was thinking, you know, like the goal is just to get the team to Euroleague. And one of the cool surprises about being here has been has been meeting you, Aaron, and uh, and kind of hearing the the vision for the BBL because there's not there's not leagues in in Europe individual. I don't even think Euroleague and Euro Cup with with a vision like that. And again, just to just to reiterate the same point that continues to, to shine a light on what you're doing overseas and, and gives you opportunities outside of basketball, which I think, you know, to, to bring it all the way full circle, I guess, is what the NBA has kind of turned basketball into with LeBron and the more than an athlete movement and stuff like that. So that alone for, for players to be able to see those type of initiatives and those type of – and the vision behind the BBL I think is is – arguably the biggest selling point uh for me um for for top level talent to come to the bbl it's like again you know yeah. contract in in euroleague if you're making just if you're making three hundred thousand dollars playing for you know for asvel or whoever it is or you can go to you know plymouth or surrey and you can make i don't know 200 at some point but you can get all those opportunities and create relations off the court I think that becomes uh, an easier decision and one that guys would be willing to make and forego Euroleague if that's not the if that's not in the cards. But it's oh. about exposure, though. You gotta like yeah. like if you don't know it, then you not like like think about it. If there was no Instagram, we wouldn't have known nothing. Like you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? You don't know how you're living in anywhere, and that's where like when we we did the thing with Shane Larkin, we showed his house. You know what I mean? We were I was doing something with a. Uh, with Euroleague, and then it was kind of ended up being a one-off. It was supposed to be a series, but I don't know the sponsor fell out or whatever. But I mean, the idea is just it's it's perfect. You know, what I mean, you got these guys, you know, that people are interested in, and obviously they're living good, and you kind of just you, you get to show a different 
lifestyle that you know people don't really know about, especially stateside. And then I think also, I don't think uh, enough leagues take advantage of showing or creating a fun environment in the arena. You know what I mean? I think they do the bare minimum sometimes, and uh, at least the leagues that I played in. And I think that's a big difference. So but you guys it, are hitting on three points that I want to talk about. But yeah. go ahead, Jordan. Yeah, real quick. That is, and and goods. We've talked about this plenty of times. I think the consensus around Europe right now is that the Euro League wants London and Paris in the Euro League, right? And I don't think it's really known um, that the BBL what what Aaron is trying to do with the BBL. So to your point, yeah, it takes exposure. But when you start telling those stories and all that, and I think people understand what's going on with the BBL, I. I don't want to say the EuroLeague thing is going to become an afterthought, but I think, you know, I, I think it's really going to, like I said before, it's really just going to open guys' ear or open guys' eyes to what's going on in the UK. And I don't know about you, but I've, I've had several people hit me up talking about what's the other teams like, what's London like, you know, just in my DMs, guys. You know how it is, guys who I'm cool with, but now all of a sudden they're, you know, we having full-blown conversations and I haven't spoken to you in two years just from that, from that interest alone. Um, so for me, it's just an exciting thing. It's exciting for me to be a part of as well. So that's awesome. Well, I appreciate it, um, yeah. and you know, I, I appreciate the, the the nice words. Flattery, flattery will get you everywhere. But like <laughs> you know, one of, you know, you sort of hit on a couple things, and you almost made the point better than I did, which is you need a really strong domestic base, mm-hmm. and you treat sort of European competition as its own sort of discrete business enterprise like from a competition standpoint it's you know i get it like you guys want to play you guys want to play against the best players and it has to make business sense and the stronger the domestic league is the more sense that the european business will will make because you've built up enough audience that are going to show up for midweek games for example you've built up enough audience that broadcasters are going to be like okay this is really strong i want to put on these european games in the uk market and you're able to generate revenue in that way for example and then, you know, as, as, as you're pointing out, like, you know, one of the things that, that was interesting about meeting you, Jordan, is like, you know, you have interest in sort of cultivating um, a career in media following your playing days. And mm-hmm. like, I would, you know, I'm not suggesting that I have a, you know, a fully articulated pathway for guys to get involved, but I'm certainly open for, like, let's figure it out for ways ways that you can actually um, cultivate that interest, get reps doing it, and, you know, try and bring you uh, positive experiences that you can leverage as, you know, you move into the next phase of, of, of your career. 100%. 100%. And I'll, just to, before we move on to, to culture, to our culture segment, and Goods chime in on mm-hmm. this one, too. But I want to touch on the competition part of it. You guys want the best competition, but how many? It, the Europe's not like the NBA, where you know you have LeBron James and Kevin Durant, Kyrie, where it's just like, oh yeah, those dudes are like that. I mean, you do have Mike James, you have Shane Larkin, who has separated themselves from the field, Vizenkov, um, you know, Dwayne Bacon, et cetera, et cetera. You have a few guys, but how many times have you heard guys go to Israel or France and play against guys who are just on the regular French team? You have Tremaine Waters in, in level mm-hmm. who, and you're like, Oh, those guys are, those guys are just as talented. I mean, maybe they didn't catch the right break or whatever, but those guys can play too. Mm-hmm. So I don't think going to necessarily playing again, playing in Euro league means it makes guys feel like they're playing. It's more of a prestige more than actually playing against the best talent. Um, 
I guess. And I think too, I think too, it's also another important thing is like because let's just say the BBL is not well known in regards to the other domestic leagues in Europe. It's also like for some guys, it's like okay, if I do go play here for a season. Will I be able to go somewhere else? Is that league respected mm-hmm. enough? So telling Facts. that story too, Facts. you know, telling that story that, okay, so-and-so went here from Spain and then he went right back to Spain or he went to France or he did, he went to Italy. So then it's just like, okay, well, I could go over here for a year. If I like it, I'll stay. And if not, I could still continue my career at the same, at a similar level. Like, I think that's also a, uh, a concern for some players yeah. going to leagues that are, that are up and coming. It's definitely a focus for us. Like we want, we want, if people want to move on, we want this to be a very marketable opportunity for them. I do. I think one of the things that's curious to me and I have, you know, frankly haven't figured it out yet is the level of bouncing around that the players do. And I get, you know, some of it is a function of the way the teams and the leagues and the businesses are structured. Some of it, I suppose is a function of, you know, guys looking for like, you know, what's the next, you know, where's the grass greener on the next move? Um, but I wonder if my, I suspect that it would, it, it is prospectively better for everyone to have more levels of stability where you're staying in a place for one, two, three years. Oh, 100%. Like, you know, 100%. and so, you know, that's something that, that I'm, I'm definitely interested in exploring further and figuring out whether, you know, if we can, reinforce that in in our league i i think uh, i think stability is whether you know it or not um i think maybe young age maybe you want to move around and see different things or whatever but i think stability from a living standpoint but more so just from a performance standpoint um you know if you look at mm-hmm. the best teams in europe those guys have been together for like the the domestic players for sure have been together for years and then you know you add in a couple you know american a serbian whatever it is to the squad but yeah, stability. Stability is a huge thing that I think is uh, is appreciated in Europe once you get older, for sure. But I also think, uh, Goods, there's a the synergy uh, for what you're talking about. Like I think guys that would come over to to the BBL if you can pay them enough, it's the guys that are kind of somewhat established and they're like, all right, let me go try it out. And those guys won't have a problem kind of going back to where they were. And I mean, myself as an example, I went to Japan for two years following Euroleague. And then you know came right back to Euro Cup, so I don't yeah. think uh, I don't think that's too big of an issue um, these days. Yeah, and I think, and I also think when you, when you have if you have high turnover, like let's say a player comes and then he leaves, I feel like it's a good thing because now other players see it's safe. So yeah. now more guys more guys already want to come there just because of the whole English language barrier. Mm-hmm. And UK is a lot more fun than a lot of these. Um, cities in other countries. So, uh, but Anthony, you're hired for the marketing team. team. <laughs> <laughs> right. Easy. Uh, you're head of external relations. <laughs> he got. He's got. I told you he's got his production qualities too. But we'll we'll save that for for another time. But let's move on to, to our to our to our culture. Um, I guess it's it's somewhat of a, somewhat of redundant a little bit, um, but. Mm-hmm. How do you think that Europe as a whole, is it possible because it's several economies, how do you think Europe as a whole can do a better job of relating to its existing and potential fans? Look, I mean, it. I, 
it, it's challenging for me because I can only sort of speak about what, what we're doing in the, in the BBL now and, of course, my own experience, experience in the NBA. I think that there are – and this is one of the things that's challenging about, about EuroLeague, EuroCup, the FIBA competitions is, you know, the advantage the United States has is it's one market. You can do one TV deal. You cover the whole market. You do one deal with State Farm, and I've got the insurance provider – for 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 uh, the official insurance partner of the NBA, when you're in 10, 15, 20 different markets, you may not have the same insurance company. In fact, you're highly likely not to. Mm. You you have 10, 15, 20 different broadcast deals you you have to do. So, you know that just challenges your ability to be able to tell. Um, to have uniform storytelling and of course then you know you get into language barriers and all of that across all of those pieces where you can engage at mass level with fans and it's done you know i don't want to say it's micro but it's you know small segment targeting and so you know i think that being said um uh one of the things that's been striking to me um, you know, early on in my tenure here at the, in, in the British Basketball League, it's like the, the amount of young families that are coming to games with, with really young kids, like even more like the NBA to, to some degree has, has gotten out of the price range of being able to, to attract those types of people. Whereas, you know, I think in, in certainly in, in the UK and I would imagine in Europe as well, this is more like you're competing for an entertainment night out. And you're competing against like, am I going to go to a restaurant? Am I going to go to like an amusement park? Am I going to go to the movies or am I going to go to a game? Whereas, you know, the, the, the NBA is much more driven by season ticket holders, corporate, you know, you're getting a much older fan group. And one of the things that I've appreciated is the way that the players are engaging with those kids before and after the game. And like, mm-hmm. Um, even just the other night where we had a, actually your game, Jordan, and, and there was a visiting team and there were a bunch of visiting fans that came and they were so excited and thrilled to meet, meet the players from, from the London team. You know, they already had relationships actually with the Plymouth, all the Plymouth players knew them and, mm-hmm. you know, were dapping them up before the, before and after the game. But, you know, to have the chance to have the players come around after the game, which, you know, I know you guys do after every single one of your games, walk around, talk to the kids like you, you really don't see that level of approachability at the NBA anymore. I don't know that you really ever saw it at, at that type of level. So, you, you know, you have a chance to form more community and almost goes to, you know, what I was saying before about about the stability is, you know, I think those are things that even resonate for the players as well as like, you know, feeling more a part of the community. You know, when I talk to like a lot of my former players about their experiences playing overseas, um, you know, I won't name them, but, you know, there's a kid who played at Villanova. He's one of their top recruits, um, went to play professionally. And he was telling me about his time and playing in Greece. And he was like, you know, I go to practice for two, three hours a day. And then I'm basically in the apartment the rest of the time, like, I'm not out and about in, in the community. Mm. And so, it's, you know, it's both boring and like, I'm not like, I don't feel like I have a connection. And, you know, part of it is language. Part of it is like, how do you engage those players in, into the community? It's actually one of the things that I've been thinking about a little bit more. I don't know that I've like fully fleshed out my thinking about it, but like, you know, where you, you have, X number of hours that you're practicing a day, are there other things that you can do 
that are either A, sort of helping you advance in what you want to do in your career in, in the market, B, engaging in the community in some, some particular way, or C, accomplishing both, right? So like you're able to gain some, some material experience that's going to support you in the next step in your career, and you're having that community engagement that's really started, you know, where the fans feel like they're invested in you as a player, but also in, in the team. I think to some degree that's futures, but I've been thinking about it a, a, a lot in terms of, you know, looking at the team's practicing schedules, like what are the players doing? Like what are different ways that you can get involved? Yep. Yep. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. There's a, I mean that, again, that's one of those things that just kind of makes your experience that much more enjoyable. Um, running low. So real quick, five word answer. What do y'all foresee as <laughs> five word answer? What do y'all foresee as the next market or the next wave of branding in the NBA? Uh, if it's well, just a particular months, place or whatever. 12, Twelve months ago, it would have been Metaverse. Um, It's yep. <sighs> a really good question. You know, in terms of the next level, I think I think we actually hit on it before, um, uh, accidentally. And what that is, is that, um, and sorry for it's more than four, five words, but I'll, I'll say it in one word, in, individuals as, as, as media entities. Hmm. I was about to say that. Interesting. Yeah, I was about to say that. I think the, uh, I think, you know, players, I think we saw it in the bubble, you know, when guys started vlogging and, and things of that nature. And now we're seeing it with the whole podcast wave and, um, but I think, you know, and I felt like about three summers ago, everybody had a docu-series, you know, over the summer, Isaiah Thomas and Katie and everybody. But I think that um, I think that is definitely like I think we're going to start seeing players probably with their own channels and streaming services or something like that. I think it's going to it's going to move in, into that type of direction where they're going to have subscribers and whatnot. That's, that's going to be interesting to see how that affects the rest of media. But I was just going to keep it simple, stupid, and say Africa. But that's a we'll, we'll move on from that. And good, you got you got the last one for us. Last segment of the day is a paycheck, rain check. Somebody's paycheck is taking a rain check. And, uh, you know, we're going to cross over on this one, man. It's a, it's interesting. The head coach from Panathinaikos, Dayan Rodinich, uh, had a three-hour, they said a reported, allegedly a three-hour conversation with the uh, with the owner of a pan at the Nacos. I, I don't want to mess up his name, but uh, Demetrius uh, sat down with him, and usually you get that three-hour conversation. They're giving you the walking papers at the end. But instead, supposedly, Dayon came out of that meeting with an unlimited budget to sign and or cut players. And uh, this is probably the first time that I've heard this being pub- publicly announced by uh, by any team, but... Uh, what do y'all What do y'all think about this move? If that is indeed true, he has an unlimited budget now um, <laughs> to sign and uh, and cut players for uh, Panathinaikos, who's obviously uh, they're they're kind of struggling right now in Euroleague. Aaron, you to guess? You go first. Is 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 KD on his way over? <laughs> <laughs> oh, shoot, my, I'm, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna say. <laughs> The dudes there better be careful because the unlimited budget might just mean that they not getting paid. 
So I don't I don't know if that really is is true in that way. But if they got an unlimited budget, man, I just don't. In Europe, I don't. How much does that matter? Because uh, again, to Aaron's point, if you don't get a KD, who on yeah, the market? Available? Who's available? Who on the market is so good that like, if you give them whatever, let's say you give them five million dollars, that they're gonna make that big of a difference? All those guys are already playing in the NBA, in my opinion. Yeah, but it's a it's a timely I think I feel like it's a timely announcement in the sense that obviously agents are are reading this, but um, you know, I think NBA contracts are guaranteed, you know, around January twentieth or something like that. It, it, again, two ways as well. So, you know, a couple guys like, you know, Tyler Dorsey just got waived and whatnot. Couple guys may become available, you know, pretty soon. So uh, I, I think it was a it was a timely announcement, whether they knew that or not. But uh, I mean, we'll see how it plays out. I mean, that, that's, I, I thought it was interesting. That sounds like kind of a dumb announcement on the team's behalf, right? Because you're kind of giving up a little. I bit I think of the leverage, timing though. is the timing is interesting, right? Like it, you would you would be you'd probably be more likely to do that at the end of a season, going into the into the following mm-hmm. season, right? Because right. like. You know, if you're if you're if you're targeting success this year, you know you could sign all sorts of great players, maybe, as you guys suggested. But then they they all got to fit together. You got to coach them up. Like, how's it going to work? You know, we're already ha- nearly halfway through the through the year. Shoot, maybe That's maybe true. they got Dwight Howard on the hook. Maybe he's leaving Taiwan. Who knows? <laughs> hey, I wouldn't be surprised. Who knows, man? But listen, that is that's great, man. That is uh, the Role Player Podcast again. Check us out on the YouTube page for Swiss Cultures at the Role Player Pod on IG and the underscore Role P. I am Jordan Taylor for Anthony Goods and Aaron Raiden. We appreciate you joining us. We had a great time. We're looking forward to hopefully having you back again and also seeing where the BBL, the British Basketball League, goes in the future. And uh, we're excited to follow it. A lot of fun, guys. I appreciate the time. Thanks for having me. Really fun.